Do you like beer? Do you want to learn how to make your own beer? It's time for Just Brew It, brought to you by Niagara Tradition Homebrew. Here's your host, Jeremy White and Bert Deister. Good Saturday morning. Welcome to Niagara Tradition's Just Brew It. Happy holidays. Holiday hours continuing. You guys are open at uh, 10 o'clock and through yeah, 4 so, o'clock, right? Yep. Yeah, so we're open today, 10 to 4. And tomorrow we'll be open 11 to floor, 4. And then Christmas Eve, 10 to 2. And the big warning I'm making to all of our brewers, because New Year's Day falls on a Tuesday, we'll be closed Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday next week. So if you want to get into brew over the New Year's holiday, you better get in by Saturday. And so, but we'll be there. We'll okay. be there. We'll be ready to go. Um, we'll have all of the toys that you didn't get for Christmas on the store shelves and ready to go for you. Very good. So holiday hours rolling, closed Christmas, also New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. Mm-hmm. Uh, something to remember. By the way, good morning. Jeremy White, Bert Dyson. I, don't, I think I forgot that part. I got us <laughs> right into the show. Um, so how you know we're getting down to it? Might be getting down to a good little brewing window. I mean, maybe you have some days off of work. Yep. Um, family around. You know, sometimes we talk about National Learn to Homebrew Day. If you got family around that might be interested in the process, this is a good little stretch of time to maybe do it. Yeah, and do you wonder what we see a lot of people inviting family members over for the brewing process uh, during the holiday break because everybody has a little bit of time off together, and a lot of times you might be you know sharing you know your beers with your brother-in-law or something like that, but you're not really sharing the brewing process, um, and. They want to see it a bit. So if you're brewing and it's a convenient time, you might want to consider inviting some, you know, family member over to check out the process. If we can give like some suggestions too, if you're inviting somebody over to brew, uh, don't have them there for the whole cleanup and setup. Try to get them there right around mash in, right where it starts to get interesting. Nobody wants to show up for two hours of you trying to find, you know, uh, MPT fittings and Teflon tape your mash tun really quick. Uh, Try to get them there once the brewing actually starts and have some beers for them. Mm-hmm. Be ready to go. Um, you know, people really like to see the brewing process, especially when they haven't been brewing. And to be quite honest, uh, I love to go, even though I have brewed a ton on a bunch of different systems, I love to go brew with friends and kind of watch their uh, their process. And also when stuff goes bad, it's funny to me, <laughs> you yeah, know, because right. it's not my stuff for once causing problems or, you know, hit missing gravities or stuff like that. And you can have a good laugh about it. But if you have some time off and, and it lines up with somebody else, try to go brew with somebody over the uh, the holiday weekend because uh, they'll learn a lot um, and they'll appreciate your beer a little bit more. Yeah. And we mentioned the holiday hours. You can also pick up stuff uh, by ordering online, shop mm-hmm. local and shop online, nchomebrew.com yes. to kind of load up and pick up what you need in store. Yeah, so if I've just told you that you better get in early before the the New Year's uh, break here and you're worried about time, put your order in online, especially if it's an all-grain order. Even if you don't know what hops you're going to pick out or what yeast, go ahead and put the grain crushing online. Um, when you do an online order with us, as soon as you come in, you can skip the line at the counter if we're waiting on somebody else. Just give us your name and we'll give you the order uh, and you're in and out quick. So if you're pressed for time, go online, get your order in ahead of time we'll send you a notification as soon as it's ready uh, and you just have to walk up to the counter and pick it up 
All right, good to know. nthomebrew.com. So what are we getting into today? So uh, today I thought we would talk a bit about Pilsners because we were talking about this last show. We've done a lot of different beer style shows, and one of the ones we've never covered is Pilsner. And we talked last week about kind of your lager basics because it's winter now. It's kind of getting into brewing season. Um, we just had the Equinox, so it's like the shortest possible days, you know, to do something. And, and really if you're going to be up for – um, 16 hours, you know, you got to find something to do with those, uh, you know, eight hours of darkness that you're awake for because most people are, you know, leaving or getting ready to leave the house right around sunup and you're getting home and it's already dark. And the brewing is a great way to use these kind of dark hours of winter uh, to actually have something to show for it in the spring. And so it'll really keep you busy. Um, but so it's a good time to brew lagers. We're getting off topic here. It's you know great temperatures in your basement for brewing lagers, but we've never really talked about Pilsner's particular. We've actually talked about some other different German lagers and stuff like that, but never German Pilsners. We even talked about American, you know, light lagers and light Pilsners. Well, this is the beers that they get their name from, um, and they really have a rich history. And so it goes back all the way to the Kingdom of Bohemia. Um, and so this is Southeast Europe, you know, where today we think of it as the Czech Republic. Um, this region has a rich and old brewing history. And if you go back in the records, the Slavic people of the region were serving beer, what they called beer, to the Byzantines traveling through somewhere around 458 AD. Hmm. So we're going way back yeah. there. They were cultivating hops for the purpose of brewing because, you know, hops are a wild plant, but they began growing them, cultivating them, you know, picking different strains based on different profiles about 860 AD. So, I mean, we talked about, you know, you didn't see many hops in beer until England until like the 1800s. You know what I mean? Right. You know, um, and here uh, in central Bohemia, they're putting in hops, you know, 860 years A.D. They're already, you know, cultivating and growing hops particularly for their brew beer brewing. And really by 1088, they were making what we would recognize as beer today. You know what I mean? Some things are cold, carbonated, made with, you know, barley and hops. Um and really, so that that dates back to the history of, we'll say, modern beer goes back to this area. Uh, and so it's like almost only fitting that the name of a city where it all kind of originated in Pilsen, uh, Czech Republic, is where, you know, it came unanimous with quality beer and good beer and why you see those names copied so much during the American beer expansion. So uh, Pilsen is on the banks of the Radbuza River, um, and the city quickly became a trading hub. So it's west of Prague, and the river runs north-south. Um, and then the big thing that happened is it became a major trading center with a lot of travelers coming through. And in 1307, the ruling king gave residents of Pilsen the legal right to brew homebrew to sell to travelers is a way to try to just make as much money as you could on anybody coming through the area. And citizens took 
a very large advantage. I think the population of the city was somewhere around 250, not very big, but they began to brew all of them and they began to kind of work in tandem. So they not only would work in tandem to have big lager houses and, um, you know, larger fermentation vats so brewers could go splits on larger batches, um, but they would also begin to explore common malt houses and uh, malting process and really begin to focus on the barley and what they needed to do to get the perfect flavor and good, reliable gravity out of it. Um, These brewing guilds began to adopt a symbol, the symbol of a mash rake and brew paddle um, crossed, which you actually see at some breweries today. And you see modern equivalents of the same, you know, symbol that goes back all the way, you know, a thousand years. Um, on beers today, if you think of the Southern Tier, you know what I mean? I think mm-hmm. it has a, what is a mash paddle and barley crush, and they're, they're all going back to this guild symbol from a thousand years ago uh, in, you know, what is now the Czech Republic, and it, it ca- came through. So that that's Czech Republic. That's Bohemia. Now, Bavaria, the other area that we think of uh, is for Pilsners, is kind of Germany and West, and and, and sometimes you include parts of France and stuff like that. Um, We're kind of talking about, you know, obviously the Czech Republic here, but that kind of competition between these two historic brewing regions uh, had a big effect on, you know, how both beers turns out. So in Bavaria, there was Rheinheimskabel. This is where you could only add right, I remember this term. Bar, you know, grains and, and yeast. There was nothing else that was allowed in beer. But this kind of guaranteed equality uh, in Bavarian beers. Um, Bohemian brewers began to try to reflect the same quality, even though they were not limited, like, you know, the Bavarian brewers, to not using adjuncts and not using spices. While they tended to stay away from spices and things like that, um, they did use adjuncts. So you would find adjunct grains and adjunct sugars and some of these bohemian pilsners. It was whatever they could do to try to achieve the perfect beer they would do. So they would experiment, again, with, with adjuncts, and that stays true to the kind of divergence in the style um, today. Um, there were some setbacks. I mean, obviously, we know about like a lot of the Bavarian setbacks, but uh, Bohemia had some big setbacks too. Um, most of the city of Pilsen was actually destroyed during the, the Thirty Years' War. So that's 1618 to 1648. Um, and a lot of these, you know, infrastructure that had already been around for over 600 years was lost in some of these malt houses and brew houses. Um, and they began to then have an opportunity to rebuild anew. So while they were set back for you know almost half a century, um, that gave them a chance to kind of begin building and exploring new technologies. And that really created uh, a wave of scientific advances uh, in brewing in that area. Um, the use of thermometers and temperature control, microbiology, um, and then one of the biggest things, the biggest thing I think out of all of this is in Bavaria and Bohemia, you had the creation of brewing schools. So in Bohemia, you had Francis uh, Pupé using the first thermometer in brewing. It had been just developed in the past couple of years for medical uses, and he began applying it to mash temperatures and fermentation temperatures and finding what, you know, what kind of change do I get with just 10, 5 degrees temperature change? What does that change in the beer? Uh, Carl Balling, uh, 
began to recognize that there was a direct relationship with you know sugar and water and alcohol attenuation and realized that we needed a way to measure this. And so he ended up coming up with the uh, balling scale and standard, which we still use today. Um, it is a direct, I think, uh, direct correlation to what we call the brick scale. So every refractometer is using the same scale uh, that's almost 500 years old. Um, the two brewing schools opening up were huge. These are the biggest change. So you have Wine Stefaner in 1865, which is still operating today. And then you have Prague in Bohemia, Prague Polytechnic in 1869, just a couple of years after. Both of these schools are still probably the place to go for a brewing education. Um, by far. I mean, like there's some brewing schools or Siebel Institute in the United States and, uh, you know, Coors operated a brewing school for a long time, but these were, were the standard. This is what kind of made modern beer accelerate during these years and really gave us what we consider as beer today because it set standards. Um, they in Bohemia had a, a good guess and in Bavaria that, that, fermentation wasn't a chemical reaction, that it was actually a microbe eating, consuming, and, and excreting. Um, and they weren't proven right until Lewis Pasteur years and years later, but they kept that common belief in these, these brewing schools that this wasn't a chemical reaction. This was actually a living uh, organism that you needed to like nurture through fermentation. And by 1897, they had their first malting school as well so that they could pass along this knowledge of good malt so that it wouldn't be lost like it was, you know, back in the 30 years war. Um, and this was huge as far as um, trying to, again, progress the brewing uh, there. The schools, the, the continuation of knowledge, the kind of, you know, the, the consensus of many master brewers uh, to come up with answers for the most troubling questions to make good beer of the day really led to a lot of scientific advances and a lot of progression uh, in beer and techniques that we use across the world. So it's like the, Today, cradle, the cradle of This life. is the cradle of great beer in world history. Yeah. In my, it, it, this is this is definitely a... Uh, um, like a qualitative assessment here. Right. <laughs> and Pilsners are one of my favorite styles um, and, and definitely my favorite style to brew, even though they can be some of the most tedious as far as uh, trying to get a consistent product from batch to batch. While I tell people all the time they're easy to brew, just like a lot of beers, it's hard to get a consistent Pilsner. When you're working with so few ingredients, you have less of a margin of error. Um, so... The Pilsners are really, they, they, they kind of set the standard for quality control. Whether you agree or not with whether they're a great style or a favorite style that really defines beer in world history, they were kind of the first set of quality control standards, the first brewers who were dumping beers because they didn't end up exactly like they wanted to. Um, infections, you know, oxidations, none of these things were allowed. Right. Um, and it really set a standard for modern brewing. Mm -hmm. We'll take a break and come back. I think it's a good point here. All right. Because there's a legend coming up, right? Yes. You want to tell the legend yes. of P Pilsner Urkel? Yes. And the, the whole start. And so when you talk you about Pilsner, yeah. this used to be just called Pilsner. So the, the Pilsner Urkel that we know today used to be just known as Pilsner. Okay. Everything else is in, you know. Is a flattery, we'll say. But. We'll, we'll tell the legend when we return. And Niagara Traditions just brew it on ESPN 1520. 
Jeremy White here for Niagara Tradition Home Brewing Supplies. You're listening to Just Brew It, which means either you homebrew or you're thinking about it. Wherever you are in the process, Niagara Tradition Homebrew is your source for everything homebrewing. Do what I did. Get a starter kit, and you'll be well on your way. Niagara Tradition will be there to answer your questions, give you advice, and as I try to become a more seasoned brewer, I know I can count on Niagara Tradition to be there with the supplies and the advice I need. Niagara Tradition Homebrewing Supply. 1296 Sheridan Drive, near Military, in Tonawanda. Open Monday through Friday, 11 to 7, Saturdays, 10 to 4, and 24-7 at nthomebrew.com. Niagara Tradition Homebrew. Pay them a visit, and remember to just brew it. All right, back here on Niagara Tradition's Just Brew It on ESPN 1520. We're talking Pilsners today. We uh, went through the cradle of, uh, well, the cradle of Pilsners and cradle of life for a lot of brewing uh well, a lot of the brewing knowledge was gained over over the years yeah. through Bohemia and Bavaria and all that. But you wanted to talk about the le- the legend of the Pilsner Urkel. Yes, and it's it, Pilsner Urkel particularly. While we saw this style develop, it didn't really carry that name, you know what I mean, behind it. It's just Czechoslovakian beer. Um, and Pilsner Urkel opened up in 1842, and they, they really have an interesting history. They had a young, under 30-year-old brewer that was kind of – pulled from a big brewing uh, brewery in Bavaria and brought over this uh, knowledge of lager brewing and lagering. Um, and the legend is that he employed a monk who was working at a German brewing company to steal a bottom cropping, or what we know today as a lager-style brewing yeast from Bavaria so they could also lager their beers. Remember, the lager yeast produced sulfur dioxide. They continue to ferment slowly at cold temperatures, blanketing the beer. You know, they didn't really have, or at least readily available, for the amount of beer that they were brewing, like, you know, glass or steel conditioning tanks. Everything was done in wood, and so the beer had to keep producing small amounts of sulfur dioxide and CO2 to kind of keep this keg slightly pressurized. Um, they, they have, obviously, they, they came in with a strict set of standards. They, they you know, were worried about their water chemistry and would only draw their water from a certain well that they controlled. Um, they only used the best local grains, Moridian, Grambinus, you know, style um, malts, which are malts that are still available today for a home brewer. Um, <clears throat> and they lagered the beer. Uh, in wooden casts, much like their Bavarian counterparts, for three months in these standstone caves that extended for eventually for miles underneath the brewery. So they had these nice, cool sandstone caves, pretty even temperature year to round, and, and they really had a great setup to make some of the world's greatest beer. Um, and they did. And the beer became a trademark of quality among beer worldwide. Um, and beers everywhere were using the name of the small town in the Czech Republic. It was a very small population, I think still under a thousand or something like that. And here they are producing like something like a, you know, a million hectoliters of beer annually. Um, and they began to fight so many trademark infringements for the name in Pilsen that they came up with the name Pilsner or Kel back in 1898 and when they just gave up on trying to control that name. So every beer that you see labeled as Pilsen is throwing back, you know what I mean, at least 150 years um, to a small town in the Czech Republic that really became a standard for brewing at the time. Now there was another, we'll say, setback 
or you could say positive elements in this that really kind of so, so right now you have you know Bavarian brewers and Bohemian brewers competing to make the world's greatest export beer um, and then came World War II World War One World War II really again kind of conglomerated a lot of the breweries and shut down a lot of smaller breweries simply because they were destroyed didn't have you know the funds to rebuild or the staff after you know World War um, and you had an iron curtain that fell over all of Europe and kind of divided these two brewing regions, which while they weren't cooperatively working together, there was information being traded through spies, basically, to get this information back and forth. And that kind of ended a lot during 1945. And so from 1945 to 1989, during the Soviet rule, the brewery was actually state-owned and didn't have much room for change. While they wanted to produce as much beer and they wanted to export as a great source, um, they didn't really have the kind of freedom to brew all of a sudden that Bavarian brewers were doing. They were kind of locked into their equipment, locked into their recipes, locked into their grains, and they didn't have much choice in it. So they were stuck with this old equipment, never changing ingredients, and but their competition was limited. So. Bohemian brewers were kind of frozen in place, making this almost historic beer for 50 years that were really massive changes in Bavarian brewing companies with these big tanks experimenting with back pressure, lagering in stainless steel, and all these other changes were not happening uh, in Bohemia. And when all of a sudden they were in 1989, when they were yet again privately loaned and had this ability to change their product, if they wanted to, they did not. They stuck with their old brewing techniques and continue to today. Tradition. Yeah. So Basically they stuck stick to the tradition. tradition. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so that's why you see a lot of times you see like the styles Neo-Bavarian, you know, Pilsner, because it's, it's changed so much and, and you're making something that, you know, it's not quite as big and not quite as malty as, you know, the previous examples. And then you talk about a Bohemian Pilsner as being very traditional, you know, um, and there's only like a few yeasts available for the style. And, and there's obviously only one or two hops that you want to use, Czech Saz being the good one. Um, but it's kind of, again, it's a two diverged Bohemian kind of stuck in its ways. You know what I mean? After lots of massive advancements, and Bavaria kind of was ever-changing in the post-World War II area. But mm -hmm. when it came back, they decided to stick the same. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit on how to make a Pilsner. And the first thing you have to get out of your head is that a Bohemian Pilsner is anything like Budweiser. Budvar takes its name from a uh, region of Czechoslovakia, even Michelob actually takes its name from a town in Czechoslovakia. Wow. And they have nothing to do. These beers were 5%. They had a big, malty, kind of uh, honey-like backbone. And they usually have like 40 IBUs. And that's 40 IBUs of Czech sauce, not 40 IBUs of Centennial. So that's a lot of hops. You're using anywhere from, we'll say, I usually use four to six ounces of hops to make a Pilsner like this. Um, and that's a fair amount. These are not little wimpy beers. While they're clear, while they're light in color, while they are consistent and delicate, they're not necessarily a wimpy beer. So how do you make one? The first thing is you want to start off with a good Pilsner malt. Don't just use Maris Outer or whatever two-row you have. Um, the Pilsner malts really give off classic flavors, and they also will adapt to your process better than a lot of your like pale ale or two rows malt. 
add something to reduce oxidation. I do add sulfite. Some people add ascorbic acid or something else. But you want to do something to reduce oxidation. It is the name of the game in these beers is trying to control the beer to make sure it's blanketed and kept under some pressure just about through every stage of fermentation. Adding sulfites will not only get rid of chlorine in your water, which will help, but during the mashing, the decoction, the boiling, the aerating, it will prevent the beer from oxidizing. So I do add a Camden tablet to the start of every Pilsner that I do, and I don't do that for every beer. Um, if you're doing a bohemian style, add adjuncts. Um, Pilsner Urquell actually uses something like 20 or 40% corn. Now, they still use a lot of Pilsner malt, and they do, you know, decoction and step mashing. So you wouldn't notice that it was an adjunct beer to the same level of Budweiser or Coors. But I guess that tells you what the process and that Bohemian Pilsner malt will do for you. Decoction mash. Even if you're using, like, a controlled louder ton where you normally don't have to do anything to change your temperature, you know, besides changing it set on a thermostat pull out some malt and boil it. They used to triple decoction mash just about every beer. Um, you can use metalloidin malt to try to make up for that, but it just doesn't have the same character as cooked traditional Bohemian Pilsner malt. So I really would suggest doing some decoction. Also, do a 90-minute boil. That creates more Maillard reaction, more flavor. But when you see people online bragging about 90% efficiency, on these pilsners, it's because you're doing a decoction mash that lasts an hour and a half, and then you're doing a boil that lasts an hour and a half, and you're evaporating a lot of water. And so while these are, again, the most time-consuming beer, you know what I mean, they can also be your most efficient when it comes to ingredients. Aerate like crazy. Use a lot of yeast. And when you ferment, for caution's sake, Air actually on the warmer side of what you feel comfortable using. There are some of the, particularly the Pilsner or Cal strain, will ferment down at 48, 50 degrees. I usually started off at about 52, um, just because I'm nervous. And you want to know what? I've been doing this for years, and I don't see any ill effects. I really get good flavors, crisp, clean flavors out of that lager yeast every single time. So go ahead and air on the warmer side. Um, and even though this is a – or one other thing, don't miss your rest temperatures. People somehow forget about the diacetyl rest, try to go right to lagering. After about 7 to 10 days, bring it up to the first floor, hit it at about 62, 65 degrees for a couple more days to a week just like you would your regular ale. And the last thing is even though this is a light beer, the word lager means to store in age. Sanitize everything well. Watch out as how much oxygen you're getting in there late in the process. Get it racked over into bottle or kegs really quickly, and you should be safe to st store this beer in a nice, cool place in your basement for a long time to really let it hit its own stride. And so if you do everything right, if you have confidence in your brewing, you should be able to make this light 5% beer and age it no problem for three to six months and have it ready for summer. All right. So... Everything you need to know about the origin of a Pilsner and uh, any further questions, of course, you can you can pop in, which is a good chance to remind you of the holiday hours. Yes. Today, 10 to 4. Tomorrow, 10 to 4. 11 to 4 tomorrow. 11 to 4. Yeah, sorry. Christmas Eve, 10 to 2. Closed Christmas. And then next week, uh, New Year's yeah. Eve and New Year's Day. We'll be looking forward to that three-day weekend. Indeed. All right. Uh, thanks for listening. We're back next week. Niagara Traditions Just Brew It on ESPN 1520. Beer, 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 beer. 
listening to Just Brew It, brought to you by Niagara Tradition Home Brew. Whether you're a seasoned brewer or just want to get started, visit them at 1296 Sheridan Drive in Tonawanda or online at nthomebrew.com. And be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Just Brew It. 